What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Fear is a wonderful thing in small doses. You ride the ghost train into the darkness, knowing that eventually the doors will open and you will step out into the daylight once again. It's always reassuring to know that you're still here, still safe, that nothing strange has happened, not really. It's good to be a child again, for a little while, and not to fear. Not governments, not regulations, not infidelities or accountants or distant wars, but ghosts and such things that don't exist, and even if they do, can do nothing to hurt us. That's a quote from author Neil Gaiman. Um, What? That quote was awesome. Yeah, right? I thought it would be good to kick us off tonight. Uh, Neil Gaiman, if you're not familiar, is the creator of the Sandman series. He's also uh, the writer of American Gods and a lot of really wonderful pieces of storytelling um, that are out there in the world today. I think he just totally nailed why horror, when done well, can be so much fun. And so satisfying. I was not prepared for the awesomeness of that quote. It's a good quote. Uh, I thought it would be good to lead us in tonight because we saw the movie It last night and we were kind of struck with not only like terror in our hearts, but the desire to really explore through our conversation uh, what horror means to us as a genre of storytelling and why we continue to seek out uh, the things that go bump in the night, the things that really scare us whether that's a jump scare or something that really shakes you to the core. Yeah, and I'm going to going to go on record here that like horror to me is a lot like the horror of the film genre, I should qualify. To me is a lot like my experience with the band Metallica. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And that when I was 13 it was the coolest thing I couldn't ever imagine ever existed. And then as I've become an adult, I'm super nostalgic for And when I go back and watch, I'm like, this is going to be great. And then halfway through it, I'm like, oh, what am I doing? Yeah. And I don't mean this to disparage the horror faithful because I realize that's a huge uh, uh, group and uh, I I respect it. I kind of get it on a surface level, but as I've aged, sort of like Metallica, like I get Metallica on a surface level. They're a great band. Like I'm not disparaging them. Just as an adult, I'm like, ooh, that specialness really wasn't there. It's not there for me anymore the way it was when I was younger. I feel that. Which is not to say it's innately immature or bad or wrong. Um, But, you know, when I interact with horror as an adult, oftentimes I find that the thing that's missing is actually scary. It's not there. 
Yeah. Right. I don't get scared. I might get gored. I might get startled. Uh, I might, you know, it might fetishize violence and supernatural in a way that's sometimes cool. It might critique Hollywood, like sort of more mainstream acting in the way that it, it emphasizes melodrama in its yeah. acting styles in a almost pseudo like twin Peakian way, the way it criticizes that acting style. And so you, you see these things, but at the end of the day, you know, it just never really connects. And then I saw it and I'm like, oh yeah, this is why I love, why I at once love this genre. And when done um, in a more contemporary, more, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? I almost want to say more adult, but that doesn't seem right. That seems like I'm being paternalistic on the horror genre. I don't know. Well, I I genuinely believe that horror is a an extremely difficult thing to execute well, and it's kind of like comedy in that way. I don't think that's unique to the horror genre. It can be really, really trying to achieve something in that genre that connects with people, that sticks with people, uh, and that is satisfying. Uh, and so, you know, some of my favorite horror movies are all from like the 1950s because they're they're subtle and they're spooky and and it's stuff that stays with you. Uh, I'm a big subscriber to the like Twilight Zone night gallery world where that existential horror is a huge part of it. Oh yeah, that and that there are some some Twilight Zones. I don't know night gallery, but there are some Twilight Zone episodes. Night gallery is Twilight Zone, but horror instead of uh, you know it's like, like sci-fi. sci-fi. Yeah. yeah, okay, that are just truly terrifying. It's also Rod Serling, so right. Uh, and then well, there's Black Mirror, which is in that sort of existential technological pseudo dystopia terrifying. You know, the one like horror genre I've always gone back to and always appreciated has always it, it's always been zombies. I've always mm. been able to go back to zombies. And I've always enjoyed the zombie because to me, in every zombie movie, not only do you have the the, the hero, the, the protagonist, the antagonist, uh, which is usually a human and not a zombie, but they always have to overcome the horde. And there's always this implicit um, critique of Americanism as a horde that's like un- in the underbelly of all the zombies. So I've always kind of connected with the zombie narratives in both serious and silly and so that that one I've always been able to get behind and get into for the most part. But uh, horror as, as writ large, the average horror movie that comes out, when I finally catch up and catch it and see it, and the horror faithful are like, you got to see this horror movie, and I go and see them. You know, I'm not going to say I don't. I always walk away going like, you know, bland, like a lukewarm soup. Like I'm like a, like a 35-year-old man listening to a Metallica album where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, if I were a teenager, I'd really love this. But, you know, as an adult, no, oh, okay. And then it reminded me that there is something more to the genre that I think this adaptation got exceptionally right. Potential spoiler wall now. We might spoil the movie um, yeah. if you haven't seen it. Yeah, and if you're someone who's read the book, uh, I haven't, but I've heard that it's fairly faithful to at least large sections of the book. Um, and there are some things that are really similar to the 1990 adaptation. Um, but I would recommend going out and seeing it because we might spoil a couple of things here and there. This episode isn't meant to be a review of it or like completely focused on it, but we, we might spoil a couple of things. Yeah. And, and just as if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you respect the opinion of both myself and Laurel. We both really recommend seeing this movie. Yeah, I Even, was really into it. Because I'm not a horror guy, and I went, and I was just like, God damn, that movie was great. So just, 
if I am to give a review, my review of that movie is two thumbs up, must see, don't wait till see it at home. Don't, don't try to stream it online. Go and see this movie because it's it's worth the investment of time and money. It is. It is yeah. itself. Oh, I see what you did there. Right. So let's kind of decompact that quote that you started with. Why do we tell horror movies or har- sorry, why do we tell horror stories? What is it about that construction as an idea that gets us going back to it? And I would say in the search for a universal story, at some level, the the universal, the perfect story, the true midnight myth has to have some element of scaring the audience in it. Why do we need that? What do you think? There is something that keeps us coming back. Uh, And I would love to point out, I was doing a little bit of research on this today. I was wondering when we started telling scary stories. And there's evidence of written, of like actual written ghost stories all the way back to Pliny the Younger. So thousands of years ago, the Romans were telling ghost stories. Pliny the Younger, to time out, just in case anyone doesn't know, that's a serious Roman dude. During the, uh, oh God, what Roman emperor? He was during the uh, early Imperium. I'm just trying to like test my Roman knowledge. Anyway, move <laughs> on. Uh, but he he wrote letters uh, explaining some ghost encounters that he'd had with like an old man covered in shackles. Um, so that's just you know after the written word ghost stories. You know those things were being told around fires along with the Odyssey and the Iliad. But it goes back uh, as long as civilization does. Um, and there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of science and psychology out there that talks to why. Some people enjoy scary movies or scary stories, and some people just totally shy away from them. And a lot of it does come down to biology in that way. The fight or flight response. Interesting. Th- yeah, the flight of the fight or, fight or flight response when removed from an actual dangerous uh, situation, like being in a movie or being in a uh, you know a entertainment haunted house or reading a book, you're removed from a situation of real and ultimate danger but you still get that adrenaline and that dopamine from the fight or flight response that, oh, that can makes be really so much pleasurable. Sense. Yeah, that makes uh, so much you know, sense. The increase in the heart rate and all that. But I find that to be, you know, a somewhat unsatisfying answer. Well, that does make a lot of sense biologically to me that, you know, I'm one of those people who does gravitate towards that rush. I think there's something deeper that keeps me coming back. I think there's a reason why I do want to go see it again. I think there's a reason why I keep watching the original Haunting with uh, Riff from West Side Story and everybody in it. I think there are reasons why I watch monster movie marathons every Halloween and why I keep wanting to be scared by things that I've seen before or I keep going back for more. Or why The Shining like, is at the top of my Kubrick oh, like man. all-time great movie list. Oh, man. Because I feel like, yeah, so on one hand, that's an interesting, I hadn't really prepared or thought of the biological component, but on one hand, we do get a sort of neurochemical rush from these movies. Mm -hmm. It releases the, my goodness, I'm so scared, Uh, my body is triggering a response um, that isn't actually uh, commensurate to the actual threat. So I get all the advantages of that rush right. without the actual danger. That, right. So that does actually seem to make a lot of sense, but I think there still needs to be a more, I think, present, like, conscious reason, and, right? And I, I'm so glad you brought up The Shining because that really, like, the second you said The Shining, like, a shiver went down my spine, and I thought of the things in that movie that 
that really truly scare me. Like, oh, of course you've seen The Shining, but spoiler alert, like the old woman like slowly lurching toward him out of the bathtub or the like really long and drawn out shots of the hallway. Um, and you think of it, which is packed to the gills with jump scares. You think of paranormal activity, which is just in, in Krentz, uh, in Krentz? New word. Incredible suspense. Boobarag in Krentz. <laughs> Incredible increasing suspense leading up to a couple of big jump scares, which really set that off for you. Like that'll, that'll get your heart rate going faster than anything. Oh, 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 go, go ahead. But the shining is a, is a shining example of something that doesn't always give you the jump scare, but delivers on something much deeper, much more guttural, I would say. And I still, I still go back. I still go back. So I'm going to go ahead and, and I'm going to say the reason why I'm not fully satisfied with the biological reason, even though it makes sense, and I absolutely think it's true, but I don't think it's the full story. Movies and stories that emphasize the jump while give you that cheap thrill and that good laugh are not the movies in that genre that I like and gravitate towards. Of course. They're not because that little thrill is momentary. Yeah. You know, that little thrill gives you a little bit of a rush. It's a fun little chuckle and laugh. Oh, I was actually really scared, but, you know, I'm in a movie, so everything's okay. What really scares me and what really scared me about it was the uh, the, the long-term eeriness of all of the worst things that you imagine could be real and could be right around the corner. And the characters in these stories have to deal with all of the worst things that you can imagine. And often, you know, we mentioned sort of the existential horror of Twilight Zone. They're dealing with that same type of dread. Absolutely. Where it's, it is the worst case scenario. You know, like the things that horror does wrong that I dislike, I just don't like watching, is like the, the glorification and fetishization of blood. Yeah, blood I'm not a fan. for blood, just because you want more of it. The more blood you have, the more pain, the more gore. And I understand that for some people, that's appealing because it hits a part of their more, you know, baser underbelly of their subconscious. But in the movie, it there's a scene with an insane amount of blood where the character Beverly yeah. gets blood. The scariest part of that is when her father walks in and just can't see it. Where and that. Where yeah. I don't know if the blood's there. I like so the the scariest part to me of this is that that long term dread that these terrible things could be part of the universe and they intertwine. Uh, the worst parts of our storytelling all become real in horror, and we all have to see what if our fears, our deepest darkest fears, are turned on ourselves. I think it get, does that particularly well. The Shining does that well. So there, there's other good examples of it too that I'm blanking on right now because I've had a glass and a half of wine. <laughs> uh, I would like to talk a little bit about that scene though that you just mentioned, where uh, Beverly, who's uh, you know the only girl in the Losers Club, is uh, you know she's in her bathroom and she starts to hear voices from uh, below the sink. Uh, and in a scene previously, she had cut all of her hair off because her insanely creepy, abusive father had been sort of fondling her hair. Um, and she was responding to that in a way that she hoped would make her safer from the horrors that she experiences in everyday life. 
At the same time, we saw her in an earlier scene buying tampons and having to hide that from her father. And her friends. And her friends, because it's an embarrassing thing to buy from a drugstore. But it's also, there's this layer of her father, you know, not wanting her to grow up and really uh, idealizing her appearance and and commodifying her. Um, But then in this scene, we see this blood erupting from the sink and the bits of the hair that she cut off coming back up into her face. And there's the there's the horrible, you know, just grotesqueness of the situation that she's in and the the terror of what's down there and what is doing this to her and why. Uh, and then there's also, this is a realization of the things that are the scariest to her right now. The fact that she is, you know, dealing with puberty and menstruation for the first time and the the horror of what will happen at the hands of her father because of those changes she's going through, and it's being physicalized in a way that's overwhelming and almost drowning. And that is what makes the the villain of <clears throat> of it it Pennywise the clown so dastardly is that you know. I, you know, at least in the movie, and I've only read a little bit of the book, and I apologize to the Stephen King faithful. It's a really long <laughs> book, and I keep putting it down. It's not because it's bad or I dislike it, so you don't need to tweet me, you asshole. Um, <laughs> or you can tweet me that, I don't care. But um, that it uses your fears. It has some sort of a tap in to your subconscious and then can manifest these fears in a physical way that we all dread. You know, yeah, we would all dread if our deepest subconscious fears came back and and started literally attacking us at times, you know. And I think that scene highlights that you know all of our fears are so deep and they're so ingrained, and it is as much a story of them overcoming fear, and this idea that's sort of interlaced in it is that we can only really bury it. Maybe we can't overcome it, right? You know, maybe it's not possible to overcome your fears. And good horror understands that line. I think The Shining understands that line. I think uh, you're shaking your head. Go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to build on that. There's a really wonderful and very simple famous quote by Stephen King. Uh, he says, we make up horrors to help us cope with the real ones. And I think what you're saying about only really being able to bury your fears and never truly obliterate them as horrible and nihilistic as that sounds, uh, feels a little true, you know, because our, our true fears, the things that, that, that really get to us and keep us up at night are things that are not as simple as a a circus clown. You know, it's really satisfying to watch a bunch of kids gang up and, and at least temporarily defeat the evil clown that can shape shift into their, into their fears, like a, you know, a painting that scares them or, or your father or whatever it might be. A leper. Or a leper. If you're afraid of sickness. Or just a clown. Cause or, clowns can be fucking creepy. Yeah. There's something satisfying about watching that physical defeat of that thing that signifies that ultimate evil and that source of fear, but it's never that simple you know, we can, we can build that in our minds. We can focus our fear on spiders. I could totally just focus all my fears onto spiders, but that's not going to, you know, fix the fact that like I have crushing student loan debt or, 
you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life or, or, you know, these crazy things that just, that just curdle in your belly, you know? And so I think that's another reason we come back to horror because it can give us a focal point for the, the dread and the fears that live deep within us, something that we can easily defeat. Interesting. We have the ability to displace our own subconscious fears into the horror movie and we get to watch the characters cathartically work out those horrors, even though we might not be able to deal with our own sort of, um, it's a projection of our own subconscious Maybe. in a way yeah. that as an audience member, all right, I'm trying to, I'm having a tough time verbalizing this. So let's say I have issue X, it's in my subconscious. I can't get over it, but at the very least I can watch some people defeat a monster in a movie. Yeah. That helps me realize that I've buried issue X down. Let's say issue X is like, you know, I had an abusive parent, which I didn't. But wow, okay, that's an interesting theory. Yeah, uh, and it's something that's sort of crystallizing just now. And I'm not a, a, you know, an expert. But don't don't disregard your own expertise. You're pretty and, awesome and, and smart. And it does feel yeah. pessimistic in a way. But when you look back at centuries and centuries of uh, tradition in in art, whether that's visual art or storytelling, literature, movies, TV, uh, the, the fear of mortality is central to so much art. Uh, I remember going through, uh, you know, Western art history in college and, you know, trying to interpret this painting or that painting. And it's like, well, there's a skull. So this painting is a reminder that we're all going to die. Or, you know, this, this painting of Jesus is is such, but there's the skull of Adam right there, which is just a reminder that all men are going to die. Uh, and I think, oh, what's the name of the character played by the Stranger Things kid? Uh, Ricky? Richie? Richie. Is that, is that right? Richie. Uh, he says he's afraid of clowns, but the thing that, you know, he's trapped in that room of clowns later in the movie, and the thing that really, really scares him is seeing you know, this sort of clownish version of his own corpse rotting right. uh, and the the image of his own face on a missing poster. He's the only kid that sees that. Uh, and so his real fear is this just really buried, really repressed fear of death, right? Yeah, and I think that character, Richie, um, you know, who's very verbal, who is constantly super outgoing, but also putting everybody down in a very like, you know, like he's like the ball buster of the group, right? He's the guy that just makes fun of everybody. He's really clever and funny and he doesn't stop talking. Well, you can see through that really quickly as a defense mechanism of someone hiding their yeah. own fears. Right. Because if you're constantly the loudest and most obnoxious of the group, sometimes I've been that there might be something, you know, that you're trying to hide by projecting that sort of outward, obnoxious, outgoing self. Right. And when we see in that scene, maybe what that is, his main fear is his own death. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I think horror does represent, I mean, so there's always the fear of death looms in every horror movie. Yeah. Every character is fighting to survive at some brute level, except really in It, because Stuttering Bill is actually not fighting to survive. That character, the main character of the, the group, The Losers, Stuttering Bill, he's fighting to find his brother and prevent other kids from going through the same thing. And this is what really sets Bill apart and makes him the hero of this narrative, because that's an extraordinarily selfless you know, role that he takes in that group. 
um, you know, he's, he's, he has been transformed by love and transformed by loss, which I think is central to that character. Right. Uh, you know, had he not lost Georgie, I don't think he would have been, uh, you know, the leader that he was. Yeah. I mean, to, to, to those that don't know the movie, it starts with the character, um, Bill who has a horrible stutter. So he's called stuttering bill building a little paper boat for his, um, kid brother, Georgie, who floats the kid, the it's pouring rain. So he floats the little boat down on like a puddle and ends up at a drain where it just fucking kills him. Yeah. You know, and it's really horrible. And I'm doing that scene, no justice in the way I'm describing it. But the main motivation for that one character, Bill is not to survive, which is, I think one of the more interesting things about good horrors that the, the main protagonist needs a motivation beyond fear yeah, of death. They need to be fighting for something a little bit more for us to really care about them. Yeah. And so many of the heroes of a horror movie are just trying to get out of the horror situation. You know, think of like the victim running, screaming and like, don't go in that room. Don't go in that room, which then they go in that room and there's the monster. And all they're trying to do is escape. Think of like, you know, any of the Rob zombie horror movies, you know, which are interesting movies, but I think they, they're emblematic of why I dislike horror. They emphasize gore for the sake of gore. They have flat characters and not that horror needs to have like the greatest character development, but some is nice. So all of the characters are flat and they're just trying to escape this hellish situation that they're in. Right. And at the end of the day, we don't remember their names and we don't, you know, we don't care about their struggles as much as if they were charging forward in the, in the hopes of a more selfless goal. Right. You know, I think of the movies hostile, you know, a lot of people like those, you know, fetishizing, torturing, good looking kids. That sounds great. That's just a, a typical Friday night for me. Right. You know, and it, it's really good when you do it live and in the flesh, but when you actually watch it, it's kind of tame and kind of boring. I'm kidding. Ugh. I'm actually kidding. So you you, you opened that door. I sure you opened that did. door and I walked right into it. I sure yeah. did. Yeah. You just lose a lot on, in the, in the theater. You the lose cinematic a lot of the... rendering is just so, you know, subpar it compared compare. to the live experience. No, I'm, we're kidding. We don't torture people at the midnight myth. No. Unless uh, you don't like our podcast, but listen to it anyway. In which case you're just torturing yourself, man. <laughs> Whoever you are listening that doesn't like it. <laughs> How'd you make it this far? How'd you make it to episode 31 if you don't like us? Good for you. All right, we're rambling. Um, Let's get back on message. that I did want to say about it, though, um, and its treatment of the, um, of the material, um, is I was really excited to see the movie because I had, I had been afraid to see the uh, 1990 adaptation for years and years because I thought clowns were totally creepy. Um, but then I was super disappointed and not scared by how like incredibly campy it was because I'm down for a lot of camp, but, um, we are doctor who fans. We are doctor who fans. I love camp, but it was just really unsatisfying to me to watch that original, um, miniseries. Although I will say I love Tim Curry so much. Like he means a lot to me as an actor. Anyway, moving on. Uh, um, should we say to those that don't know, Tim Curry is Pennywise the Clown in yeah, the 90s adaptation. Yeah, Tim Curry adaptation. plays the original Pennywise the Clown um, and is just an excellent, excellent performer. But I was really excited to see this movie because I was, uh, I, I couldn't wait to see it treated with, uh, you know, 21st century production value. Um, but I was also a little fearful that it would be kind of a postmodern it. And I am pleased to report that it is not a postmodern it. You know, it was very earnest 
it pumped that 80s nostalgia, which I'm totally here for. Um, but even if you're not here for the 80s nostalgia, there was something about it that was just really earnest and straightforward that I appreciated a lot I think in terms you, of tone. I think you should flesh out the it is not a postmodern it a little more. Yeah, well, I'm ready for a lot of sequels and reboots and remakes to be cynical and be ridiculously self-referential to a point of um, of just laziness. To a point of Deadpoolness. To a point of Deadpoolness. Um, we love Deadpool, but it, it's just chock full of cynicism that I, I hope is not a continuing trend in uh, in modern storytelling, but it seems to be. Um, so even though it's a it's a movie full of monsters and jump scares, I felt that this adaptation of it was was really quite sincere in its rendering, um, especially in the performances and the writing of the kids. I appreciated them a lot. And anyway, and well, I, I think flesh more into the postmodernist part of that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the postmodern storytelling, and of course, we're like post postmodern at this point. Um, it, it tends to it tends to carry a lot of the sort of irony that we walk through day to day with. Um, and I think that while I'm someone who prizes and uh, values subtlety in storytelling in a lot of places, this is another reason why I loved Stranger Things is that it knew when to be subtle, but it also knew when to tell you exactly what it was instead of hiding it from you. It was like, okay, we're a bunch of kids who were playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, she just said upside down. So what if there's another world? What if there's another universe and it's upside down from where we are and there's a monster there and yeah, let's just go fight it. There's just a, there's just a very clear and straightforward message to that. That's just like, let's not bullshit. Let's cut to the chase and tell you what this is going to be. Um, and I think it does the same thing. Yeah. I think, you know, that if you think of the postmodernist interpretation of anything, the postmodernist challenges authority at its core. And this is true whether it's a postmodernist rendition of history, whether it's a postmodernist rendition of a story. It says, where is the authority by which you are claiming X? Um, whether that's, you know, you're claiming this is a horror story. And in that, it tries to challenge previously held assumptions. And I think what this movie, it does, is says, you know, there's a lot of things out there that are challenging and breaking down the mold and assumptions we're not going to reinvent the genre. You know, we're not going to reinvent the assumption that, hey, a clown who can change shape and eat children while telepathically projecting it fear, its fears, that's scary enough. Yeah. We don't need to add anything else to make that scary. That's, that is in and of itself enough subject matter that when we bring that to life, uh, we are going to be bringing this universe to life. We're going to be breathing air. And you you start from the idea of like, Hey, who's the authority in it? Well, it was Stephen King in his book and his intention, and they wanted to be true to what made it popular. You know, not necessarily true to the the, the story itself, but true to the the substance of it, respecting that authority. You now, postmodernist interpretation of it would say, "Who the fuck is Stephen King?" You know, just because I'm doing the story, it does that mean I have to do his story? I think what they did. You know, and I've only read, a, you know, a, a bit of the book, but from what I've read of the book, I'm like, oh, well, this really feels like, hey, this should be this, the, what made this book cool. This should be its film 
you know, version of that. I think ultimately we as moviegoers, we crave the sincerity. It might be good to be cynical and it might be good to challenge the assumptions when we realize we're in a cycle that needs to be broken. Yeah. And I think like we mentioned Deadpool, Deadpool broke the superhero assumptions. You can't be successful if it's R rated. Well, fuck that. They, they made it R rated. You can't be, um, you know, uh, successful if it mocks all of the tropes of the genre. Well, fuck that. They mocked all that. So Deadpool might have need to exist horror, you know, in terms of its, in its mainstreamism, I don't know if it needs a reinvention as much as it needed in it to come out and say, no, horror can be a great movie. It can be a great story. You invest in it, right? And not only will it be uh, popular and profitable, but it's going to be acclaimed. Yeah. And it's more about going back to the source uh, than, than completely reinventing the wheel uh, because horror is something that I, I feel like the trend in, in horror movies over the last several decades has been, you know, just going over and over and over the top. Um, and we see that with the endless sequels to the saw movies and hostile and whatnot, um, and the paranormal activities, like let's do that thing, but then try and do it bigger and bigger and grosser and more jump scares and so on and so forth. And more, and, more torture for torture. And this felt like a statement of that. That isn't necessary. You don't have to do that. Um, you can tell just a really good story and move forward from there. Yeah. And I think the, if you're trying to really understand it, there is a question that I think is worth examining. Why clowns? Why clowns? You know, and I think it's a, it's an important question in terms of what makes it scary, but I think it's pretty consistent in the horror genre. Like think of the movie Poltergeist, another really good horror movie. One of the scariest bits was a little girl touching a screen on a TV, just going, they're here. here. You know, think of uh, The Shining with the two girls. Come play with us, Danny, forever. And I think the consistent theme of of some of the scariest moments, clowns like, you know, know, Pennywise the Clown, the it, um, that they've taken this familiar, this thing that, really is not supposed to be scary and they've packaged something scary underneath that we can sense. Right. Yeah. And this gets into, this gets into some of your guy, Freud, uh, and his theory of the uncanny or My what guy. we call, yeah. My you guy, love, Freud. You love Freud. I do have a toy of Freud. Yeah. You have a Freud toy. I'm, I'm looking, looking at, at him it right, right now. I'm looking at him right now. Right next to our buddy Christ. Yeah. They're hanging. They're best friends. I'm sure they, I'm sure they are. They like to get into adventures. Uh huh. <laughs> little scrapes. I'll we should do that. a web comic. Yeah, I'll tweet that out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we get into the uncanny Valley, which y- you may have heard before. It's, it's one of the, um, one of the top reasons given for why we're so scared of clowns, but not just clowns, uh, things like mannequins or, uh, ventriloquist dummies, or even like too realistic looking robots or cyborgs or CGI. Um, and that theory of the uncanny it really just refers to things that have humanoid or human-like appearances, but just aren't quite right. There's just a, a kind of there's there's this one sort of little little valley in which certain things fall, where they're just too close to being human, but not close enough. Right. It's like that that creepy doll my grandmother had 
that just sat there when I was sleeping and staying the night at my grandmother's house. And I had to look at this little creepy doll that just looked like a little girl, but had this creepy teeth that the teeth were just, Oh, that'll do it for you. It's always the teeth. And it looked like this doll would come to life and eat my face off. Oh my God. And as a boy, it would terrify me. There's a really good night gallery about that. Yeah. We should watch that. We should. I haven't. Um, Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, you know, a a cartoon isn't going to look creepy or unsettling to us. And a real person isn't going to look creepy or unsettling to us. But the thing that's right in between those is going to be just a little unnerving. Right. So a little girl touching a TV screen in and of itself is not scary. But when the TV is just giving that sort of snowy static and everybody else is asleep... There's just something quite off. Why is she touching the screen with nothing there? You know, and that just, they're like, there's just something subtly not right about this enough to start making you feel creeped out. And then as an audience member, you get rewarded when you watch a, a horror movie because you get that feeling and you're right. It takes you on that journey. When you first see it, he's underneath a, he's in a storm drain You know, why is this clown in this storm drain that leads to a sewer? And right out of the gate, you're like, well, this is fucked up. You know, I think the clown in particular, because the clown wears makeup, the clown hides his or her face, hides the thing that we readily like identify as a human. When we think of a person, usually their face is one of the first things that pops into their mind. So we don't really know what's happening underneath all of that makeup. And it's why we have, we have Jason. It's why we have Michael Myers wearing the masks, you know, it's why we have uh, villains whose faces are obscured because there is this fear of the unknown or this mystery about them. It's not even unknown. The feeling of it should be known, but it's just quite left of known. Yeah. And then there's also the just horrible irony and juxtaposition of things like clowns that are supposed to be joyful and entertaining and things that you clap for and laugh at and enjoy. Um, also having really sharp pointy teeth and pulling kids into sewers or being in a sewer at all is just terrifically horrifying. Absolutely. Um, small aside, a friend of mine was talking, I think it was her hometown. Somebody played a prank um, and the night that the it movie came out, uh, tied a bunch of red balloons to the sewer drains. That is not cool. Town. That is just so That's not cool. so sick. Um, That's just so unbelievably uncool. But I think that it makes a great example to talk about the nature of horror as a genre because it's so expertly, uh, you know, deconstructs the nature of fear and that transition of, you know, childhood fears to adult fears. So word. Yeah. So your childhood fear might be something a little more tangible, might be something a little more simple. Um, but as we try to defeat it and overcome it and maybe push it back down the well, it might just evolve into something a little more difficult to grasp. Well, if you think of the things that you fear as a kid, right? So the first thing that pops into my mind was darkness, being awake Mm -hmm. and losing one of my senses, the sense of sight and not losing it completely, but it just being muted. That fear, meaning that there's something that I can't see that could somehow get me that fear essentially of the unknown that kind of lingers on. 
And, you know, it's no surprise that most of the craziest shit that happens in a horror movie happens in a dark setting. Yeah, there's this, low light. This isn't universally true. You know, sometimes, you know, filmmakers and movie makers will subvert that by putting things in bright scenes and still making it scary. So it's not always true, but it's one of the, the things. And I think that basic anxiety of a child working out what is there when they can't see, it's also working on a major like first problem of, hey, the world with the lights on and the lights off, what is the difference? Is there a danger? On certain, on certain level, darkness represents a rational danger because if something is trying to get you, it has a higher degree of getting you if it can see you and you can't see it. Right. Uh, there's also the physical danger of you're not able to move as freely because your sight's inhibited. So you might bump your head, you might trip, you know, there's also the, I think, embedded subconscious danger of, you know, human society, n you know, not having light at night, it always being inherently more dangerous. You could get lost in the wilderness, you, you know, all of these things. So on one level, it's rational. On the other level, from the modern, contemporary, average, blue-blooded American, you know, when the lights are out, there's no actual danger there for you. You know, so then there's the hyper-rational of, like, there actually isn't anything wrong. Having to work out that problem to where you're not afraid of the dark, some people can never get over that unknown. And it may not be the fear of dark. They might grow up to become agoraphobic and be just be afraid of the outside and afraid of the unknown. It could manifest in other ways. But I think us seeing these fears young and what it does is throwing those in our faces shows us that there is some complexity to the fear of children. Yeah. And this, this leads me to another great quote from Stephen King, uh, just on, on creating horror and writing horror. He says, there are three types of terror, the gross out the sight of a severed head tumbling down a flight of stairs. It's when the lights go out and something green and slimy splatters against your arm, the horror, the unnatural spiders, the size of bears, the, d the dead walk, waking up and walking around. It's when the lights go out and something grab something with claws grabs you by the arm and the last and worst one, terror, when you come home and notice everything you own had been taken away and replaced by an exact substitute. It's when the lights go out and you feel something behind you. You hear it. You feel its breath against your ear. But when you turn around, there's nothing there. Yeah, and I think that speaks to one of the reasons why I think plenty of adults cling to ghosts. You yeah. know, because I think that idea that there's something quite there that you can't grasp that every time you turn around is gone. And the idea to put a form and a function to that fear, a lot of people manifest as ghosts. I think it's absolutely a representation and a manifestation of the subconscious, uh, you know, mortality complex. Absolutely. You know, and trying to work out the idea that one day we'll turn around and be dead. Yeah, and because I think, as scary as the idea of, you know, a, a, a lost spirit trying to contact you or haunt you is, uh, you know, it's actually a little more comforting than the idea that you don't know what comes next. You don't know if anything comes next. But the last thing that I will say about the horror genre is that my favorite horror movies are good old-fashioned ghost stories. Oh, right on. Yeah, they get you. Like, what's your favorite ghost story movie? 
Uh, it's a tie between the the original The Haunting and um, Dead of Night, which is a really cool horror movie about uh, a bunch of people who meet up at this house and talk about their nightmares, and they sort of visualize their their worst dreams. And then at the end, the guy wakes up from a dream that he got an invitation to this house, and so the, it just goes on repeat and repeat and repeat. It's a great classic ghost movie. Oh, that sounds very cool. Yeah. I've it's never almost seen like it. a long night gallery or Twilight Zone episode. Right. I've seen the original Haunting and the remake. Yeah. I love the original. It's yeah. my favorite. Yeah. I'm sorry, though. The best is The Shining. Oh, yeah. I mean, The Shining is just a classic and, and incredible. Incredible. Um, well, now that we've spent some time, you know, just contemplating our mortality and uh, and hoping to get our adrenaline pumping with some good scares... I think it's time we play a little game. Do the thing, Laurel. So every week here on the Midnight Myth podcast, we get really heavy and contemplate our mortality. And uh, so to lighten the mood, we like to play a little game to uh, you know just get the juices flowing. We would love for you to play along at home. So if you have a response to the question we're going to ask, please tweet us at the Midnight Myth on Twitter. Visit us on Facebook, uh, the Midnight Myth podcast on Facebook. Or drop us a line on our website. It's www.midnightmyth.com. We would love to hear from you. Awesome. So this week's game's rules are very simple. You are being confronted with Pennywise the Clown. It. What form does Pennywise take to defeat you? And in other words, what is your deepest childhood fear? Oh, my deepest childhood fear. Well, it doesn't have to be, but whatever the fuck I was going to do it now. Oh, do it now. Um, in which case, it's a, it's like a draft of a, an uncompleted email response to a, a work email that I got weeks ago. It just takes the form of an unfinished work email. That's the thing that it haunts you like and, and attacks you. My That's blood it. blood curdle. You have a draft of an email. That's your deepest fear. Oh my god! <laughs> that that's it. I think Seriously. a lot of our listeners, you're kidding. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to my situation. Why not just finish the fucking email and I hit don't send? No, man, it's so scary. Why does that scare you? I yeah, I don't know. That's I draft terrifying. emails all the time because I'm like, let me start this. Oh, something happened. I'll draft it and then I have it in drafts. Then I can go back and finish it later. Yeah, that's uh, that would be the rational way to handle it. Uh, that that's your biggest fear, isn't that whole or Cthulhu? No, you can't save it with Cthulhu. That's your biggest fear. Yeah, it is. You can't you can't just like throw it's a Cthulhu the in there thing. to spice it up. It's just the worst thing. So when it comes to separate us, to uh, isolate us, so that we can't form a, a pact to defeat it you'll just see a gigantic undrafted email and go into terror and horror. Yeah. And I'll like sit down and try to start writing it and I'll agonize over punctuation um, and try not to sound passive aggressive and so on and so forth. Okay. Yours is lame. I know. I'm just, I'm, I, I hate to be so blunt. But I know, but I truly think a lot of people can relate. I, you know, people, if you relate to that, let me know. That does make, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah. Not trying to be insensitive. We're different types of people. You know, I guess so. My biggest fear is failure, and I don't know how Pennywise manifests that failure. You know, like uh, so. I've been really thinking about it. And I think even as as a kid, 
that was still a really big fear that I would fail at things. You know, like it's one of the reasons I was like really bad at hitting in baseball when I played little league. Cause I was so afraid I'd strike out yeah. that I'd fucking strike out every time. Yeah. You know? And so I, I don't know what that's like, you know, what Pennywise could do in my head, but maybe like have me surrounded by all of my coworkers, all just like, and family all just being like, you suck. You're terrible. You failed. Like, you know, you're fired. Uh, we don't ever want to see you again. Like, I, you know, maybe mm, like that kind of yeah. like psychological game would like cripple me. Like if I saw the people that I admire and care about the most and want to impress the most, be like, fuck you, you suck. You know, like, so I think I have that. That's my fear. I have a fear of failure. But, you know, I don't know what the Pennywise form of that looks like. I mean, I think that's... that's and dying uh, in an airplane. Oh, Yeah. Or space. I'll deal with space. That's really quick. Yeah. Like seconds and you're dead. Oh, man. Yeah. But that's only if like you just get jettisoned out without a suit. If you get jettisoned out with a suit and you just have to wait until you starve to death and you're just like slowly drifting off into space. Actually, that's pretty terrifying. It sucks. Yeah, that that's really fucking awful. <laughs> that's a terrible way to go. Well, eventually you'd run out of heat before food you starve yeah yeah yeah. right i don't know anyway we're we're debating the merits of space death but i think what really it it gets to at the bottom of this like the core of both of our fears right here is really similar like i said the email you said failure and i think at the very center it's it's snake clowns absolutely i really fear snake clowns and until next time be kind and the only thing we have to fear is fear itself (laughs) 